WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Sometimes people procrastinate and they're not able to get everything done that they need to do, so they stay up all night focusing on that one thing they have to do the next day. Yeah, this can in turn have a lot of effects on the person's performance afterwards if they haven't gotten enough sleep, whether it's how well they're able to remember what they were trying to learn the night before to handling different emotional situations that could arise in the following day. Researchers are trying to understand the relationship between sleep and memory. Today, we're here to talk to Aaron Sawyer, Abdul Rahman Harthy, and Kaylee Williams. May you please introduce yourselves? Hi, my name is Erin Sawyer, and I'm a second-year undergraduate here at MSU. I'm studying psychology and data science with minors in Japanese and social science quantitative data analytics. Hey, my name is Abdul Rahman Al-Harthi. I'm a fourth-year student here at Michigan State University. My major is biomedical laboratory sciences, and I am concentrating in clinical chemistry with a minor in leadership in integrated learning. Hi, I'm Kaylee Williams, and I'm currently a fourth-year student at MSU, majoring in psychology with minors in health promotion and cognitive science. Thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to hear that you're all coming from such diverse backgrounds. Before we get into the details, though, could you please tell us about your project? Yeah, our lab studies a variety of connections between sleep, memory, and complex cognitive skills. But this one focuses on, of course, sleep and memory. And the majority of the studies on this relationship focus only on investigating the relationship where the formation of memory was intentional for situations where participants are aware that they are expected to recall this information at a later time. So like taking a test on what was learned. And this is similar to you have a test for school and you maybe want to study for it. That's going to be intentional encoding. But here in this study, we're looking at incidental encoding. So basically the information that you just encounter in your everyday life, you're not really looking to study or learn it specifically or actively. It's just kind of information that you encounter. Yeah, I agree. Usually whenever I'm undergoing active learning, whether it's through taking notes during a lecture or participating in classroom discussions, I feel like I'm able to actually retain the information that's being disseminated to its classroom. But I feel like whenever I don't get nearly as much sleep, it really starts to take a toll on my ability to just pay attention in general in a class. This could also be known as intentional learning, but how does that compare to non-intentional learning and non-intentional memory? So this is Erin. So our lab looks at a variety of different relationships between sleep, memory, and complex cognitive skills. And in this study, we're really focusing on, as we said before, incidentally encoded memory and sleep. The majority of studies on the relationship between sleep and memory focus only on investigating this relationship where the formation of memory was intentional for situations where participants are aware that they are expected to recall this information at a later time, like taking a test on what was learned. And their results showed in all these studies that sleep does strengthen memory for information intentionally studied or actively remembered for later use. So that's our intentional encoding compared to incidental encoding. All the studying you do for school, if you make flashcards, if you, you know, read over a PowerPoint that you're trying to remember for a test or an assignment, that's intentionally encoded information. But there is a lack of research on the relationship when information is remembered without intention or incidentally encoded memory. So this information is things that you kind of just encounter in your everyday life, like street names or the color of shirts that people are wearing. You're not thinking about those things as things that you need to memorize, but you certainly encounter them and may remember them at a later date. Thanks for that explanation. 
when I think of incidental memories, that brings up thoughts of where people can undergo trauma, for example, whether it's through something that they experienced in person or even just internal trauma that they might put themselves through without even realizing it. How do you quantify whether or not incidental encoding is happening based off of the experiences that individuals are having? In our lab, the way we tested the incidental encoding or the unintentional encoding is by having the participants who came into our lab do the tasks by either rating the words based on how abstract or concrete they are. And this, this encoding, we call it the deep encoding. They rate the words in shallow encoding. And the shallow encoding is basically where the participants rate the, rate the number of the vowels in a word. So this is the manipulation that we use when we quantify or when we manipulate the encoding for the participants. Yeah, and going off what Abdul Rahman said, then after the participants go through those encoding tests, they are surprised with a memory test in a later session that basically tests the incidental encoding in their recall. So that's where they start the incidental encoding process, and then they're asked to recall it later. I've never heard of shallow encoding before. Why are people asked to rate the number of vowels in a word? Is there a reason why there's a preference of vowels? You also mentioned that you do surprise memory tests afterwards. What are those surprise memory tests specifically? I don't think there's any specific reason that we're using vowels over consonants. I think it's just more of a way for them to visually encode it rather than having to think really hard about it. And then the surprise memory test at the end just ask the participants to recall any words that they saw in the first task that they were given. That's completely understandable. Is there an advantage to using words versus, for example, images or even video for performing these kinds of memory tests? And if your lab is interested in looking at the differences between these different forms of media, why so? I think that words allow us to really easily manipulate the encoding tasks to be kind of a deep level of processing or a more shallow level of processing because words give us a better ability to manipulate the level of depth of processing. So when we think about levels of processing, shallow levels of processing typically, kind of like Kaylee said, are more visual. You're just like looking at maybe the letters in the word or something like that. Whereas the deep encoding, which kind of aligns with deep levels of processing, asks you to look at the meaning of the word. So like Abdurrahman was saying, you rate words according to how concrete or abstract they are. Semantically, when you think about those words, it's a deeper level of processing. So I think that it would be harder to manipulate kind of the level or the depth of processing if we use something like videos or pictures because there is such a big visual component to those and maybe we would have to adopt a different procedure, but this one just is a lot more simple in manipulating that factor. I like that explanation because with videos, you can't really change much in it unless you're changing like color. But with words, you can change the way how things are spelled. For example, my name is not spelled like a typical Chelsea. My name actually ends with I-E and people mess that up all the time, but it's okay. I remember that you all had mentioned that you were investigating this study in regards to sleep. Now to focus on that, whenever you're gathering this data, do people report to you the amount of hours that they're sleeping the night before or do you have an area in your laboratory where people can sleep? The way that we incorporate sleep into this study design, we do this in a multitude of ways, but for the majority of the study designs in this line of work, we split the participants into two groups. We have the sleep group who comes into the lab, they do their encoding task, either deep or shallow, and then they go home for the night, 
they do their normal nightly routine, get their normal night's sleep, and then they come back in the morning to the lab and get the surprise memory test. The wake group is the opposite. So they'll come into the lab in the morning, they'll do the encoding task, then they'll leave the lab, go about their normal daily routine, they're just staying awake until the next part of the session in the evening, and we do exclude people who take naps. Participants do have some level of variability in their normal night routine or normal night sleep, but we do collect some sleep data both before and during the study time frame. And one of my responsibilities as an RA this semester was to help with some of the data entry of those sleep logs. And I can say that college students do, in fact, have as crazy of sleep schedules as you might imagine. In another study of ours that follows the same basic study design as what Erin was talking about, We have participants come into the lab where we have two separate bedrooms, and we set up partial polysomnography on them, which is a type of EEG, in order to watch their brain waves so we can see what sleep stages they're in as they sleep. And we can use this data to see how the sleep stages affect memory retention. Lots of undergraduates love to do that study because we do have full-size beds that are much more comfy than dorm beds. We definitely get a lot of participation there. Early in this interview, we talked about how there are many studies that focus on the relationship between memory and intentional learning, but I want to understand what is the motivation behind this study and why do people care about gaining a better understanding of this relationship? In the Sleep and Learning Lab, the main mission is understanding how sleep consolidates their learned information. In specific here, there has been a lack of research on understanding if the intentional memories that we form from encountering information on day-to-day basis are reinforced by sleep. Most of the studies conducted in the past on the relationship between sleep and memory were studying in the aspect of the intentionality, and they all proved that intentional learning of information does happen to be strengthened by sleep. However, our lab wanted to resolve the unclear idea about the unintentionality of our memory. From there, we went on and investigated, and we found that actually the unintentional memory that we form, sleep participates in consolidating them. And we also investigated the relationship between the memory strength and the sleep consolidation. And again, we found that strong formed memory are better consolidated by sleep. I'm understanding that you're all saying that sleep is improving memory, but how is it improving memory? Are there specific brainwaves that are recorded during deep sleep that help rejuvenate the brain overnight to help enforce memory? In our second study, which uses PSG, we found that slow-wave sleep improves memory performance, and slow-wave sleep encompasses stages three and four of sleep, which are basically the same thing. Some people even group them together into stage three. And during this stage, brain activity slows down greatly, and it's usually very hard to wake someone up during this stage of sleep. I'm hearing you all mention PSG a lot. Can you explain what that is in more detail and why it's valuable for your experiments? Yes, before asking the question, let me explain the usage of PSG. PSG stands for polysomnography testing, and it is quite similar to the EEG testing that is most commonly used. But this test is designed to exclusively, or more importantly, get the brain waves and study them 
in terms of the sleep stages. And the way we set up the PSG is by connecting biosensors to the participant's head in order to collect the data when they are sleeping. From the data that we collect and the data that we see is the sleep stages of the participants and the data that we collect at the end can be the data that we collect also from the surprise memory test that we do to the participants. And we try to figure out if there's a correlation between a certain sleep stage and the memory performance of a participant. From what I've gathered, it sounds like these two different experiments are helping to solve this overarching problem of the connection between sleep and memory. I wanted to ask a little bit more about this partial polysonography. How does that work? And what does that tell us about how a person is sleeping? There's actually four studies in this line of work, but we're focusing on the last two. The most important result from the first two is that we did find that sleep does consolidate incidentally encoded memory, specifically for the deep encoding task. So moving forward from that result, we found this really exciting evidence that sleep consolidated incidentally encoded memory that really wasn't researched before or in the same capacity that we did it. So that was really, really exciting and suggested that sleep may consolidate memories based on other factors than intentionality or emotion, which is what was previously investigated. Going forward, we wanted to think about the nature of the connection between consolidation and sleep. So why does sleep choose to consolidate the information that it does? And one kind of like our main thought on that is that it depends on the strength of the memory trace. That's why we're doing the deep and shallow encoding. We feel like deep encoding strengthens that memory trace. But there are other ways to do that. And one of the ways that we did that in the third experiment, which we consider to be experiment one, because again, we're building off of two previous experiments to have these next two that we've been working on in the past year or so, is we tried to manipulate the memory trace strength by introducing repetition into the encoding task. Participants would either see words one or three times in their encoding task. And we were trying to see if that would increase memory trace strength or help us find evidence that memory trace strength does in fact affect what information is consolidated. In that experiment, we found that same evidence as we did before where we know that sleep does in fact consolidate incidentally encoded information, more so for deep encoding, but that the repetition didn't really have a lot of significant effect. Experiment two complements that where we're building off of the deep encoding being the stronger memory trace, or at least we believe so, that helps information be consolidated even when it's incidental. There's no question that doing an analysis for this kind of work must be really daunting. Could you talk a little bit about the results that you obtained from your PSG and how this informs your studies using the wake and sleep groups that you have in person? When we're looking at PSG, the data that we're kind of looking at, we can see visually there are visual characteristics in the brain waves and the eye movement, all the things that we collect, that we can identify what sleep stages the participants are in at certain times. This allows us to measure the amount of time that they spend in a certain stage of sleep, for example, the slow wave sleep. We did find that slow wave sleep or the amount of time spent in slow wave sleep was connected to better memory performance for incidentally encoded information. This complements our other studies where we found that yes, sleep does help consolidate incidentally encoded information. It's based on this deeper shallow encoding or the strength of this memory trace. These results inform those results by helping us understand the more biological portion of that connection and trying to attribute 
that benefit and that consolidation to some stage of sleep and really what's going on in the brain that's causing this to happen. Some people define a full night's sleep differently. I know people that function fully on six hours versus some people that need nine hours. In your experiments, what do you define as a full night's sleep? During the PSG portion, we put the participants to bed at midnight and then we wake them up at eight o'clock in the morning. So we would define full night's sleep as eight hours. In the sleep-wake group portion, there is a little variation because we are allowing participants to go home and do their normal nightly routine and sleep. Whenever you're recruiting different people to join in this study for the sleep and wake groups, they're going to have different sleep schedules that they already have. How does the change in their sleep schedule affect the results of your study? Do you take that into account or do you do any sort of training beforehand to get them accustomed to living at that sleep schedule that you're assigning them to? To help us understand the sleep pattern of the participants, beforehand we give them a sleep diary that they fill out every day for the past five days before the study. And in the diary, they are supposed to put in what time they went to bed, what time they woke up, did they take a nap during the day, did they wake up uh, during the night at some point, for how long did they stay up or not. And we collect the data for their sleep in the past five days and uh, try to make sure that they are reaching a threshold. It has to be six hours or more of sleep. That makes sense. You mentioned that you use the PSG in the laboratory, but whenever these participants go home, are you using something that you can monitor whether they're waking up or having a full night's sleep? For example, they can wear something like a watch or they can use their phone to monitor the movements on their bed. For this study, we send participants home with the sleep diary to fill out, saying what time they went to bed, how many times they woke up, and then what time they actually woke up in the morning, totaling how many hours of sleep that they got. In another study of ours, we do send the participants home with the Fitbit in order to monitor their sleep. I would imagine that right now during the COVID-19 pandemic, that makes it difficult to collect data on this kind of information. But whenever we do return to some sort of sense of normalcy, how can future people participate in this program through your laboratory? We are actually able to run some studies right now in an online format. We've been running online studies since halfway through spring semester, about when we got sent home from campus. We are able to do that because a lot of our studies consist of tasks on the computer that we can send out virtually. If we needed to collect more data or wanted to do another study similar to the study design where we have the sleep and wake groups, we most likely would be able to figure out a feasible option for that because the most important parts of that are online or on the computer with a survey. What's hard is when we want to use these more advanced techniques like polysemnography. As we mentioned before in the polysemnography component of this study, we do have participants come into our lab and they interact with one to three RAs, depending on how many people we need for the time frame or to set up the polysemnography. They're in contact setting up the polysemnography and they're sleeping in our lab space. As much as we clean those spaces thoroughly, and the equipment that we use thoroughly between each person, I do feel that people will have some sense of discomfort, which is rightfully so, in coming to complete a study in person during this time. 
I think that we definitely will be able to continue in some capacity for this kind of study and others, but until we get more information about what the guidelines are going to be or what restrictions or precautions we need to take, I definitely foresee us having to change up some of our procedures or forego some of our data collection methods for the time being. I think it's completely reasonable that some people may have reservations to go into the lab and sleep at night because of the pandemic right now. I do appreciate that you're all taking the proper precautions and keeping the area clean, though, for the current participants. Unfortunately, things might not be better soon, but hopefully in the future, you'll be able to receive the normal amount of participants and be able to get that data. Thanks a lot for being on the Sci-Files. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It was enjoyable. Thank you. This was fun. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Dan Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, Station Manager Joe Dandrin and General Manager Jeremy Whiting. The SciFiles can be found online on SciFiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on SciFiles or if you have any questions, you can contact us at SciFiles at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.